the idea of the carrot was the old Aesop fable. It's better to lead our people with a carrot than it is to beat them with a stick. Hi, I'm Alex Pascal, CEO of Coaching.com, and this is Coaches on Zoom Drinking Coffee. My guest today is a global thought leader in the field of corporate culture, leadership, and employee engagement. He's the founder of the workplace training and consulting company, The Culture Works. In 2023, he was ranked in the top 10 global gurus in leadership and organizational culture. He's also an author of several best-selling books, including All In, The Carrot Principle, and Leading with Gratitude. Please welcome Adrian Gostick. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Great to have you. Let's start where we always start on coaches on Zoom drinking coffee. <laughs> what are we drinking today? Now we're drinking Diet Pepsi. So <laughs> Pepsi's been <laughs> ours for many years and uh, it wake me up in the morning. It certainly will do. I, I haven't had a Diet Pepsi. Can't even remember. <laughs> I don't want to date myself by telling you how long it's been. <laughs> but nice. Well, it's great to have you. I would love for you to take me through your journey. How did you end up being a coach and doing all the great work that you do today? Well, thanks. Yeah, about 20 odd years ago or so, my co-author Chester Elton and I were working in a mid-size consultancy and doing work in employee engagement, employee recognition, started writing books. One that took off was called The Carrot Principle. It was one of those books that launched us and, and sold a half a million copies here in the U.S. And so all of a sudden, we started speaking and consulting with different organizations. Hadn't even thought of really coaching. Didn't even know that it was a thing 20 years ago. And back then, honestly, coaching was more, you got coached if you were about to be on the outs. Slowly, it started developing coaching into a practice for up-and-coming executives or executives who maybe needed to, to make that leap to the next level. And that's where we started getting involved, where people asked us, would you take on, you know, maybe a little challenging executive that we're working with and evolve to more working with just some amazing people where we began learning more than others. So after all these years, we've, you know, Chester and I, we've written 15 books. We've, you know, worked with people around the world from, you know, just about every continent except Antarctica. And we've really had a lot of, you know, amazing experiences helping not only leaders, but their entire organizations really define their culture and who they are and where they're going as organizations and also leaders. I want to learn a little bit more about before you wrote The, the mm -hmm. Carrot Principle. Tell me a little bit about that journey yeah. and also let's break down The Carrot Principle after you do that. Yeah. Well, in my background, I was worked in newspapers, magazines, and then I got into the corporate world. I started out as doing investor relations and uh, corporate communications for a big bank, big oil and gas company. And then I went to work for this, uh, this consultancy doing employee engagement. Now, you know, so Chester, when I joined, it was interesting. I, I joined the company and one of my employees said, you got to meet this guy, Chester Elton. He runs sales up in the Northeast and he'll just change your life. And uh, it, was, it was actually prescient because uh, Chester did. Chester had an idea to write a book. You know, I'd written a few fiction books, but I'd never, never thought about writing a, a nonfiction book. So he said, you know, we were doing some really interesting things with these clients up there. And 
And we're working with J&J, working with some interesting companies. And why don't we try writing a book on what we're doing with, with these organizations in employee engagement? So we wrote a book called Managing with Carrots. It was our first uh, foray into this carrot world, and we didn't have any idea what we were doing. So I found a local publisher in Utah, where I'm in Park City, Utah. We went to their offices and over on a park bench out front, because their offices were in a barn. We wrote this little contract out, and they put our book out. Well, ended up selling 40,000 copies. We thought, oh, that's kind of normal for a book. They said, no, no, no. That's like in the top 1% of all books. Uh, Do another (laughs) one. And we went, well, we thought that would be it. We'd write this book, and then we could go back to our normal jobs. So we wrote a parable book called The 24 Carat Manager. And parable books at the time, 20 years ago, were quite hot. And uh, Lencioni and others were writing them. and, And they were actually really popular in Asia. And we started speaking quite often in China. And one day, Chester was speaking in China. He's up on stage, and he just gets mobbed afterwards. And there was a reporter in the audience who wrote for the New York Times. And the next day, on the front page of the business section of the New York Times, there's this story about Chester Eldon and other authors from America getting mobbed in China. And we got a call that day from a guy named Fred Hills, who had discovered Marcus Buckingham and others at Simon & Schuster. And Fred owned the uh, Covey Library at Simon & Schuster. So he had published Stephen Covey years ago. And he said, what's happening to you in China, I can do for you in the U.S. And he says, do you have another book? We said, well, we want to write a data book on recognition and employee engagement. And we we want to call it The Carrot Principle. And he says, that's the book for us. And so he published that book for Simon & Schuster. And that was the book that took off and really put us on the map and helped us go around the world speaking and coaching and consulting with organizations. That's a fascinating story. Getting mobbed in China, <laughs> launching your career. I love it. <laughs> so tell me about the, the carrot principle. You know, it's interesting is that we'd written, a, you know, as I mentioned, a parable book. Managing with Carrots was a case study book of what we were doing with different organizations. But what we found was that when we wrote The Care Principle, we teamed with Willis Towers Watson, and they opened up their database to us of millions of people in their databases. And we started looking with their statisticians and their PhDs to analyze what really made a great leader, what made a great manager. And what we found was that great leaders have five characteristics in common. They're, they're good goal setters, they hold people accountable, etc. One of the things that nobody had really talked about before was they are better at recognizing than their peers. And they're a lot better at it. And that's what we found in the CARE principle was that there's data to back up that if you're good at recognizing and appreciating your employees, well, then you're going to see higher levels of customer satisfaction, employee engagement, all the things we're looking for, employee loyalty, et cetera. And yet it's one of those things that, unfortunately, so few managers do well. So that was really the the impetus of the book. And the idea of the carrot was the old Aesop fable. It's better to lead our people with a carrot than it is to beat them with a stick. So I just remember talking to people who said, I was walking through the airport and I saw that carrot on the cover and I went, I had to know what that was about. So it was very intriguing, I think, for people. Yeah, it really really is. Everyone has heard about the carrot and the stick and I think most people would probably prefer the carrot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and and we forget that when we become leaders. 
We forget what it was like back in the day when we weren't the leader. We're, we're motivated by different things over our careers. And we've done a lot of studying now 20 years later in human behavior. You know, if I'm a senior manager or an executive, I'm motivated in very different things. It might, I may be motivated by money. And people say money's not a motivator. Well, you know, when you're making a lot of money, it actually can be. But when you're not, when you're making a set amount of money, there are other things that are a lot more motivating to you because you know you're not going to get big bonuses or stock options. You know, those, those things are very specific thank you that somebody actually knows the value that I'm creating here at work is very meaningful. Now, two years ago, we updated the care principle with a new book called Leading with Gratitude. And that's the latest thinking, the latest data on recognition. And we took it from recognition to gratitude because gratitude is bigger. Gratitude is actually seeing the behavior that's being created around you and then recognizing it afterward. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So let's unpack that one, that book, because employee recognition and rewards and software for that really exploded, let's say, we're, you know, in the 2010 to 2000 and kind of 20 period. And then you have the pandemic where organizations are adjusting to working in a dispersed way. Globally, you want to keep people engaged, you want to retain them. So this is a very timely topic, and it's been timely for, for a long time. So let's unpack that. And I like the frame around gratitude, because I think it is more all-encompassing. I, I definitely agree. You know, one of the things we said when we started writing Leading with Gratitude, we were doing a lot of work with Marshall Goldsmith, as you know. You know Marshall well, Alex. And Marshall and Chester and I were sitting around one day, and, and Marshall said, you know, isn't it interesting? He says, with all the executives I work with, he says, the thing that's typically missing with them when he starts coaching, he says, is the, a lack of gratitude. They are so focused in on shareholder value and driving this, this, and another initiative that they don't see the work that's being done to lift them up and to elevate them but below them. And he says, isn't it interesting? And so we, we, we brainstormed, we said, and Jester said to Marshall, he says, we should write a book on this about gratitude. And so we started, we are all working on it together. And then Marshall's publisher said, no, 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 you're about to write The Earned Life. And he says, so you can't write this one too. So he's like, okay, well, fine. So Marshall <laughs> wrote the forward and, and gave us lots of great feedback. But that was the beginning of it. It was that so few leaders get this right. And the idea with gratitude, we saw, we did an analysis of the behaviors, and again, another research study, but we did, we looked at the behaviors that were missing. And first off, we saw that they, do, they don't see, a lot of leaders don't see, they don't see the behaviors that were going on around them. They don't walk in people's shoes. And so we had lots of examples within the book of ways to see the behaviors that are happening that are creating value within the organization those values that you want to keep going. And the second part of the book is about expressing. So it's seeing and then expressing thanks, but doing it in a way that's meaningful, not in a way that, you know, and one manager recently told me, he says, I'm the Starbucks guy. Anybody does something great around here, I, they get the Starbucks card. So they clean out the supply cabinet, they get the Starbucks card. They save a million dollar client, they get the Starbucks card. And so I asked him, I said, let me challenge you. I said, go, go talk to your people about this. Ask them what they do with those cards, if they like them or not. And if, and if I'm wrong, then I'll eat my hat. I said, but I have a feeling you're going to hear some interesting things. And he came back and he said, well, he says, it was interesting. He says, about half my employees said, 
I don't even drink coffee. So I end up giving them away. One, one of my employees, she said, uh, I actually give them to my neighbor because he goes by Starbucks every day on the way in. So he loves it. And so this guy said, I have been recognizing my employee's neighbor for years. <laughs> but he loves Starbucks and he loved the cards. And I'm nothing against that if that is what your employee values. And what we find is that we tailor to the individual. We recognize things that are meaningful in a meaningful way. We recognize based on our values. We get others involved. So it's not just me, the manager. We get the whole team involved. And there's lots of case studies within Leading with Gratitude about organizations that make this an entire team event. And so it's not just on the manager. So there's a lot into the, in this, but it really is about seeing the great behaviors that are happening and then expressing your thanks in a very meaningful way. Yeah, that makes all sense. And it's interesting. We, we tend to reward people the way we want to be rewarded, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> like you're saying, but, but not everyone wants to be rewarded in the same way. So mm-hmm. a little bit more of expansive thinking around how do you show your gratitude to other people and, and just having that space to kind of think a little bit about, you know, what would that person appreciate? Yeah, it's a great word. It's a great say. You know, Chester and I, we learned this ourselves too. And 20 years ago, when we started writing this, the first books for this consultancy we were working with before we went independent, he wanted to get me recognized. You know, I'd written the company's first book. And so Chester goes to the CEO and says, let's get Adrian recognized. And, and he says, uh, let's give him a watch because I noticed he doesn't have a watch. And he'd love a watch because Chester loves watches. And he says, uh, let's invite him to the big gala banquet with all the, the salespeople. Well, Chester's one of the salespeople. He loves things like that, interacting with people. For me, it was like, wait a minute, I have to go to some meeting with people I don't in a weeknight and sit for four hours watching other people get awards. And then at the end, I get up and I get this watch that's still on the box over in my corner here, gathering dust. (laughs) No, and I knew they meant well, but it just missed the mark because like you said, it was what Chester valued. Now, of course, later we've laughed about it and and we've realized, and we actually have written books about this. You got to get to know your people. What I'm motivated are ideas like creativity and autonomy and family. So if they do use those ideas, Hey, let's give Adrian something to do with his family or, a chance to be creative on his own, you know, autonomy. I would probably have even done more work for them if they'd have really figured out a reward that would have been more meaningful. And so, again, meant well, but kind of missed the mark. How has the world changed since you wrote that first book? Yeah. In what aspects of it, when you look back, you're like, wow, maybe it doesn't apply as much. And what aspects of it you think are still very applicable? Yeah, that's a great question because with human behavior, and sometimes we'll have a reporter call us and you know say, look, hey, we're the Wall Street Journal. We need new, fresh data on. And what I can tell them is we have employee engagement surveys that began in the 1940s, and the numbers are almost exactly the same as the data we're seeing in 2023, is that we are humans and we need certain things. So what has changed is unfortunately very little. People still need to be recognized. They still need to feel valued. Now, what has changed is a few interesting things through the pandemic, especially, and also with social media. You know, more people are using electronic means, social media, et cetera, to recognize their people. That's all great. That's all positive. The big trend that we're seeing in the last couple of years 
is the tale from the pandemic is that there is still a mental health tale that's coming. And I'm sure we'll chat about anxiety at work, our book, in a minute as well. But that's the big thing we're seeing is empathy. That any book that is being written right now, whether it's on the care principle, whether it's leading with gratitude, whether it's any, any book that any other author is writing, has to acknowledge that our people need more empathy than ever before. I, I write a column every month for Forbes, and if you'd have asked me a few years ago, you know, what are the great leadership characteristics of, of great leaders that we should be coaching people on? I would have talked about vision and communication, teamwork, et cetera. Now there's really just one word, and that's empathy. Because if you don't have that, your people won't follow you. And if you have that, then the rest matters. So that's the big change that we're seeing that we didn't talk about even, you know, five, 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a new competence for managers to yeah. develop and to, to be mindful about. I mean, the world's becoming a much more complex world and things yeah. like these that before would be like, well, that's such a, an interesting area for a manager to develop. <laughs> you know, maybe some people are good at that and some are not. But now it becomes a essential component of being a, a good manager and the dynamics that we experience today. I, I was coaching one manager and he's an engineer. You know, typically he's the smartest guy in any room. He's got a master's from MIT and I'm coaching him. And I told him, look, I've, as if they're doing his 360, you got to develop your, your empathetic side. And he says, look, Adrian, he says, I just don't care about that at all. And it's just what you said, Alex. And I was like, if you want to raise to the next level and you do, then you've got to develop this. And it was interesting, a couple of years later, as we kept working and working, how much he had changed. And didn't want to, you know, he was completely an engineer at heart and yet saw the need for this in his work, especially if he wanted to elevate to the highest levels of his organization. Right. Yeah, it's always interesting coaching engineers because typically they're very smart. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, that intelligence is difficult to apply to some kind of human oriented or people oriented. And I'm not saying every engineer is like that. No, you know, no. I think we can generalize that, you know, when you're coaching an engineer, typically they have a different perspective on people yeah. or their energies place somewhere else. Yeah. So it's always, I, I always find uh, coaching engineers a really cool, interesting challenge yeah. because in my experience, they're usually very well meaning and they want to do the right exactly. thing around having an expanded perspective on how to think about the way they interact with others. It's always a, a fun, challenging thing. Yeah, so I used to coach a lot of engineers. And, you know, I work with a lot of engineers as well. It's an interesting area for coaching. You know, one of the things that uh, when I think about coaching and engineering, I always think about how interesting it is in, in organizations that the typical kind of go up the ladder approach doesn't really work for engineering right. roles as much. Yeah. Because, you know, you... As you go up the ladder, you probably want to get kind of these broader competence around your expertise, technology or whatever engineering you're doing. But the traditional way of growing up the ladder in an organization was to become a manager. So there's so many organizations today yeah. that have really evolved the way they think about promoting people in different facets of, of work. And as I actually think that's one of the most fascinating areas in organizations how to create pathways for people to grow and to move outside of the, oh, well, you're growing, then you're going to have a larger team. You know, like mm -hmm. some people could be individual contributors and be really up the organizational yeah. ladder. So that's something that I've always find fascinating. 
Yeah, no, I remember reading an HBR article about a pump company in Brazil, and the, the CEO said, uh, the highest paid person in our company is the guy who knows when we put a pump in a boat that goes into the Arctic, how much it needs to pump out of that. He's just one of our people. But he has a skill that nobody else in the world has in figuring out what pump each ship needs to be able to stay afloat during different conditions. He's developed this skill. And because of that, he is the highest paid person. He, pay, he makes more than I do because he has that unique skill. How refreshing that is to know that there's different skill sets. And managing is just another skill set within the organization. It may be as valuable or, or more or less. It's good to see those types of organizations thriving that are creating parallel paths for people to succeed. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about anxiety. I know it's an area of focus for you. And I mean, we're in these post-pandemic years. Even the word pandemic is, I think we all kind of don't even want to hear that anymore. But the reality is we are in those post years, <laughs> post blank years. And anxiety was really accentuated, both in our experience of life, and we were a little bit more anxious. And then a recognition of anxiety and wellness and just general kind of well-being and how it applies to work. It's a very timely topic, and I know it's one that is, is important to you. So mm-hmm. we'd love to talk a little bit about that. No, thanks. Yeah, you know, the, the pandemic... Like I said, we're, we're years past now, and we may not realize the impact that that had on all of us. It really disrupted a lot of our lives. Like, for instance, before the pandemic, we would go out to dinners, we would have social connections, and they sort of got interrupted. And for many people, they never started again or didn't in the same way. And so this is what we have our own podcast on anxiety at work. We interview psychiatrists, psychologists. We interview a lot of people in the mental health community who tell us their work has skyrocketed and it hasn't gone down because people are looking for ways to fill what community used to do for them. Now they're looking for mental health professionals to help them with this. So it really has created a tail on the dog, this pandemic. And the tail is is this mental health that we knew would be continuing for several years after the pandemic, that we may not even notice the disruption. Now, the reason we wrote Anxiety at Work, my son has had anxiety since he was a little guy. He's now 28. He's worked in high tech. He's worked in in genetics labs. He's got his advanced degree from USC down in LA and in stem cell research. So he's a, he's a smart guy. And he asked me, well, probably four or five years ago, he says, as I'm working in these different labs, he says, some managers get me and some don't. He says, I may work 80 hours in a week and, and then, but I need a mental health day now and then. Some of my managers just don't get that at all. And some are very empathetic and understanding. He says, do you ever write about that? And I go, oh, no, no. We never, ever talk about mental health in the workplace. Oh, gosh, no. And he says, that's interesting. He says, because I'm in my 20s. He says, in every conversation people in their 20s have with each other, we ask each other about our mental health. And we're serious about it. You know, how, how's you, how are you doing? Really, Alex? No, no, really, how are you doing? Because this is what I'm feeling. He says, we do that every conversation with each other. He says, you oldies? He says, you never talk about it. And he says, and we never talk about it with you because you don't get it. 
And so I started kind of seeing these trends. I was working with, you know, a few weeks after that, I was with a big defense contractor, 300 top executives. And we opened it up to Q&A afterwards. And it was every question they were asking me were about these younger employees and how come they don't get it? They don't, how come they don't get how we work around here? And after four or five of these questions, I had to stop and say, have you thought about doing things maybe a little differently <laughs> that you're needing to, th to think maybe a little, a little bit differently about things in this new world and meet in the middle? Because maybe what they're pushing you on isn't so bad. And the pandemic hit, and I've been starting to work on this book, and my publisher called, HarperCollins, and they called and said, how soon can you get that book out? You know, that was March of 2020, and we, we, we moved fast. Yeah. And we had the book out, really was one of the first books to talk about anxiety in the workplace. It's written for managers, but anybody can pick it up and get a lot of ideas. But it's really how you bring down stress in a team, how you bring down anxiety in a team, because 70% of a typical person's anxiety comes from their boss. That makes sense. That's why I tried to be a good boss. Good. <laughs> The relationship you have with your boss is definitely like, uh, you know, just like outside of my professional experience, you know, with my friends, the ones that tend to be happier are the ones that have no boss and love it or the ones that have a great boss. Yeah. If you have yeah. a bad boss, it guarantees that your existence will be painful. Absolutely. You take it home with you, don't you? Yeah, 